0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Let's pray again. Father, for this time, um, echoing what Dan has just prayed, we ask that you would make, in these moments now, we ask that you would make Jesus to be more cherished in our hearts We ask that you would overcome us with the truth of his kindness and his love, and we ask for this in his name, amen, amen. So today is the third Sunday of Advent, which means we're just eight days away from Christmas Day, and the reason that we're looking at this passage this morning is because of that little phrase at the beginning of verse 7. <clears throat> so I want, if, if it's possible, I want to make sure that we all see this, okay? So if you can, all right, either with your own Bible, if you, if you brought one, or your phone, or you might have to share with your neighbor, I want everybody to get some eyes at the beginning of verse 7, all right? It starts with these words, verse 7 starts with the words, in the days of his flesh. If you see it, say amen. 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 In the days of his flesh. Now this phrase is important. All right, in the days of his flesh is a good literal translation. If you you read from the NIV translation, it actually says there in verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth. And that's a good interpretation of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He he starts verse 7 by pointing us back to a time in history when Jesus lived on this earth as a man. The the, the writer wants us to think about Jesus living here in flesh and blood like ours. But now, why does the writer do this? Why why does he bring up Jesus' life on earth? And this has to do with the context. I'm going to just explain this super briefly, but we just heard Dan read it. Okay, It actually starts back in chapter 2, verse 17, which we saw last week. Chapter 2, verse 17, the writer tells us there that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest because in every respect, he was made like us. And then at the end of chapter 4, verse 15, the writer repeats that same idea, and he says that Jesus is our high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect, He has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so 2.17 and 4.15 repeat the same idea. And it's not just that Jesus is our high priest, but it's that Jesus is our high priest because Jesus became a man. It's because Jesus became like us. It's because Jesus has walked in our shoes. That is what has qualified Jesus to be our high priest. is because Jesus gets us. That, that's the point that the writer is making here. That's the context. That's the context here. And so now in chapter 5, what he's about to do, he's about to drive this point home. That's why he starts verse 7, in the days of his flesh or, or during the days of Jesus' life on earth. The writer is about to prove to us, he's about to prove to us with an example from Jesus' life on earth that Jesus gets us. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm on the edge of my seat, right? This is fascinating. I I am interested in what the writer is about to say, how he's going to prove to us that Jesus gets us. And so let me just pose a question to you. What example from Jesus' life might you use to make this same point? Think about the Gospels, think about Jesus' life. If you had to choose one scene from Jesus' life that proves that he gets us, what scene would it be? What about the The humble conditions of Jesus' birth, the Christmas story. The the fact that Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, was born in a stable. Jesus had very simple beginnings. In the days of his flesh, they started as something that everyone can relate to. Or what about the time uh, at the wedding of Cana? This is in the Gospel of John. This is when Jesus turned the water to wine. This is the first recorded miracle that we see Jesus do in the Gospels, um, and uh, it's a miracle, right? So it's only something Jesus can do. But it—it it was such an earthy miracle, so earthy. Just you know, this is a, hes at a party. And he's at he's at this party, this wedding celebration, and, and the party hosts had run out of wine. And, and they, there's a lot of people there, tons of people celebrating this this wedding, and they run out of wine. And I imagine that was probably embarrassing, right? If you run out of, of wine. And Jesus' mother was there, and so she she says, Mary says to Jesus, she's like, Jesus, can you do something about this? Can you help him out? And here's Jesus, he did. <laughs> He helped them out. Jesus, he he made water into wine. He he gave them wine that had run out. So so Jesus, we see in the days of his flesh, Jesus, he he met super practical needs. What about the time um, when Jesus came to the home of Lazarus, his friend, after Lazarus had died? Jesus comes there and he steps into a place surrounded by the family members and the friends of Lazarus who were grieving his death. And Jesus stepped into this place and he himself was grieved. The the text tells us that he was moved. He he was troubled. And, And the Bible says that Jesus wept. In the days of his flesh, Jesus was sad. There's also the time when the crowds were following Jesus, and there were some parents who started bringing their kids to him in the hopes that, that Jesus you know, might bless the kids or give them something special. And the disciples didn't like this, if you Remember? Back in the, the first century world, kids weren't as cute. People didn't think that kids were as cute back then. True. true. And, and so these parents were bringing their kids to Jesus. The disciples were annoyed, and the disciples told these parents to beat it. Go, stop. And Jesus is like, nah, <laughs> no, let the kids come. And then he, he scoops up these kids. And he's holding these children in his arms. And he says to his disciples, and if you want to come to me, you got to become like these kids. Jesus, he, he teaches us there that we, we will either have Jesus as those who are helpless, but we won't have him. In the days of his flesh, Jesus demolished Pretense. What about the time when Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus up in the tree? This is, this is, this is, an, ama- this is an amazing story. The story of Jesus speaking to Zacchaeus again. There's a crowd following Jesus. He's, he's on his way into Jericho, and there's a, a, a swarming crowd, and Zacchaeus knew Jesus was coming. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but the crowd was too big, and Zacchaeus was too short. The The literal Greek there is wee little man. And you guys remember what he did, what Zacchaeus did? He, he climbs up in a sycamore tree because he wanted to get a good view of Jesus as, as Jesus was walking by with this crowd swarming him. and And rather than Then walk past him. Rather than pass him by, Jesus actually came right to Zacchaeus in the tree, and Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus. He's having a conversation with a man in a tree, and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm about to go to your house, which was an amazing surprise, Zacchaeus. I mean, Zacchaeus would have been, could you imagine? Zacchaeus was just hoping to get a look at him, and Jesus is like, hey, I'm coming over. It was an amazing surprise. It was an amazing irony. And so in the days of his flesh, Jesus had a sense of humor. Then there's the time when Jesus, he turned the tables on the way that James and John thought about greatness. Or there's when Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple because of their greed. Or there's the time in John chapter 4 when Jesus was walking from Judea to Galilee. And this is right before he's he's in Samaria, right before he has the conversation with the woman of Samaria at the well. And this is what the text says in John 4. Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, sat by the well. Jesus never sinned but he confronted sin and human weakness head on things like selfish ambition or greed or fear or hunger or disappointment or weariness Jesus knows all about that and and and, and they're all examples of how he gets us the gospels are full of examples of how he gets us but the writer of Hebrews does not talk about any of those examples here instead the writer of Hebrews takes us back to one scene in the gospels when Jesus was alone if, if you want to see how Jesus really gets us if you want to know How much Jesus knows what it's like to be us, let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the writer doesn't mention Gethsemane here by name, and at one level, the whole life of Jesus involved the kind of humiliation that we see in Gethsemane. But verse 7 seems to be talking about a specific event. Jesus, verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries to him who was able to save him from death. This sends us back to the Thursday night before Jesus was crucified. We know that on that Thursday night, late in the night, Jesus got along to pray in Gethsemane. And the gospel writers tell us that Jesus agonized in prayer His soul was sorrowful and troubled, and he pleaded. He pleaded with his father, not only shedding tears, but even sweating drops of blood. He pleaded, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The the Gospels tell us that Jesus prayed often. Over and over again, we see that Jesus is getting away to a place of solitude for prayer. But Gethsemane was the place where Jesus experienced excruciating prayer. Loud loud cries and tears. This was a, a painful kind of praying. Imagine the sound of the pain. And because Jesus experienced prayer like that, we can be assured that He knows what it's like to be us. Because Jesus experienced excruciating prayer like this, He knows what it's like to be you. According to the argument of Hebrews, because Jesus experienced this kind of excruciating prayer in the days of his flesh, during the days of his life on earth, it verifies that he knows what it's like to be us. And I just want to, all I want to do today is just linger on that. Let's just think about that. And what I want to do is just focus in on one question. Like, this is the sermon. (laughs) One question. How does Jesus' excruciating prayer in Gethsemane make him get us? This is, we're just laser focused. Here's the question. How does Jesus' excruciating prayer in Gethsemane Help him get us? That's the question, and I just want to focus in on one answer to that question. And it it's the fact that Jesus had to wait. He had to wait. We hate to wait, don't we? We, ah. Uh. We can't stand to wait. If you think about it, pretty much all of popular technology has been created to conquer waiting. We've been shaped by our society to think that waiting is a problem, when when, when honestly waiting is just basic to being human. Waiting is part of our creaturely existence. And as much as we try to overcome waiting with our technology, waiting will always be what God expects of us in our relationship with Him. And Jesus knows what that's like. Notice in verse 7, the writer doesn't spell out the exact content of what Jesus prayed, but he does give us category and manner. He gives us the category and the manner of Jesus' prayer. The category is prayers and supplications or petitions. This means that Jesus was asking the Father for something. Jesus, he was requesting something. And the manner how he made that request was with loud cries and tears. And so if, if we put these together, it means that Jesus in the garden, was earnestly wanting something. This was a, a, a please, 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 please kind of request that Jesus was making. And, and now if, if, if we take the category and the, and the manner of the prayer and we add that to the way God's described here in verse 7, him who was able to save him from death, Put, put this together. Jesus earnestly requested something from him who was able to save him from death. What then do you think he requested? To be saved from death. right? I, I, I think this is another reason, that phrase there, to him who was able to save him from death. I think this is another reason why Gethsemane is in the writer's mind. Jesus earnestly wanted to be saved from death. Jesus asked the Father, "If it's possible, remove this cup from me." Now we know that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. We know that from Hebrews. But we need to be clear. Jesus did not relish the cross itself. Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Jesus dread, He dreaded his suffering on the cross. And sometimes I wonder if we, if we really appreciate this truth about Jesus. I think that that we can tend at least speaking for myself, I, I, I think we, we can tend to think that Jesus was able to endure his suffering because he had some kind of like special power as the Son of God. This is a, these are really deep-water thoughts, right? It's, it's complex. But I, I'm, I'm suspicious that somewhere in how we think about all of this, I think we can imagine, even subtly we can imagine, that Jesus' deity was the underwriter of his endurance. We think, yeah, G- Jesus really did experience unspeakable suffering but he was God. You know, he was God. I just think, first, that's true. Jesus, he absolutely is God, and he was fully God and fully man here on this earth. He was in every respect. In every respect, Jesus was like his father, and in every respect, Jesus was like us, is. But we would be misguided to think that it was his deity that got him through his suffering. Gethsemane certainly corrects that. Here's a way to think about it. Jesus, he would have looked forward to having nails driven through his hands about as much as you would. Like, just think for a second. Like, what if you knew right now what if you knew that, that, that right now, by tomorrow noon, you were going to have spikes nailed through your hands and feet? You're going to have big thorns crammed into your head, and you were going to be scourged. You, you were going to be beaten 39 times so that the skin on your bare back is just shredded and exposed, and the physical pain wasn't even the worst part. Just imagine that you knew that was going to happen to you tomorrow, around this time. How would you sleep tonight? I get nervous about the dentist, okay? Seriously. Just imagine if you knew that by tomorrow at this time, you, you would experience the worst pain ever inflicted upon a man. What would you have sounded like when you prayed? Jesus is like us here. He's like us here, and He prayed hard. He prayed hard. It was an an excruciating prayer that He prayed. And did God answer Him? That's not an easy question. Because Hebrews says that God did. Look at the end of verse 7. The end of verse 7, Jesus prayed to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. But wait a minute. We We know what happened. The Father did not remove the cup. The crucifixion was every bit as horrible as Jesus dreaded. Probably worse. And so how was Jesus heard? Well, it's that Jesus was saved out of death, but he was not saved from dying. God God saved him out of death, but he was not saved from dying. The the resurrection is God's answer to Jesus' prayer, see, which means that, that Jesus was not saved from experiencing the horrible thing. He was saved from the horrible thing having the final say. And this means that there was a time, there was a time in the suffering of Jesus when it seemed like his prayer would not be answered. Because Sunday morning didn't happen like that, right? Jesus had to endure. Waiting, the waiting, which became in Gethsemane a whirlwind of suffering, a whirlwind of suffering. And we are tiptoeing into mystery here. Jesus knew and Jesus believed perfectly that the Father would never abandon him. He knew it. He believed it. And then also on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know you won't, but it seems like you are. You've said this. I know that. You've said it. I know it. But just look, just look around. Look at the news. I heard the report. The the big realities and the big truths that are so important about God, these big truths about God that we need, they are less clear in the whirlwind of suffering. And what could be more human than that? We know what God can do, and so we ask God to do it, but we're stuck in this whirlwind, and we're not sure completely if He's doing anything. And so we have to wait, waiting. You ever been there? You ever had to wait? We know what He can do. We've asked Him to do it. God, do it. Please, please, please. And we have to wait. You know, answer prayer is a wonderful thing. Like, I, I have in my mind a list, man, of prayers that I have prayed and God has just done it. Like, I have a running list, always I keep right here, of things that I have, I have asked God to do and God has done them, and I rejoice. I give thanks. I give praise. I am amazed and encouraged when God answers our prayers, and we should be. We should rejoice when God hears us. Just just last week, I saw this little video of this guy. He he did this video. He's out fishing. Beautiful sunny day somewhere. He's out fishing, and as he's fishing, he happened to see this bald eagle, flying like way across this lake that he was at. And he sees the bald eagle and he prays. He says, God, would you let me get really close to that bald eagle? I just want to get a good look at that eagle. That's what the guy so the guy's doing a video, a selfie video, and he's telling this story about, hey, I just wanted to see this eagle. I pray God, would you let me see this eagle? And then he pans out with his phone and the eagle is sitting on the guy's shoulder. I'm not kidding, no joke. An American bald eagle is standing on the guy's shoulder as he's doing this video. And like, I don't know this guy, I don't know his theology, right? But I'm like, dude, that's awesome. Like I, I saw the video and I was like, praise God. Because look, God can make, look, God can make eagles land on our shoulders. He can. But there was no eagle that landed in Gethsemane. And although God does answer our prayers, and we should be thankful for that, there's a lot of times in our Christian lives when we, we do not have bald eagles on our shoulders. And Jesus gets that. Did you know that? He gets it. Jesus prayed an excruciating prayer, and he had to wait in the whirlwind, just like you and me. And in that waiting, his obedience was not easy. It wasn't easy. Look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered The way the writer says this means that it's not what we would assume. This is kind of like what we talked about a few minutes ago. It's natural for us to assume that Jesus as the Son of God somehow means that He came pre-programmed to obey. Like, if we could pretend that the whole world was like a big carnival, just full of carnival games— we might think that all the games were somehow rigged for Jesus to always obey, like the basketball goals rather than the, the, the rims being like bent, almost closed, where the ball doesn't even fit in. It's almost like we might think that when Jesus shot, the, the rims were actually stretched out super wide, right? We, we, I think we just had this idea that somehow it was easy. We, we, we might would say, because he was a son. Obedience was easy. But Hebrews 5:8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And we know that this was the case for all of Jesus' life. But it especially was the case in Gethsemane. Gethsemane assures us that Jesus' obedience was authentic obedience. It was was not laboratory obedience in a controlled environment. This was obedience in the waiting, obedience in the whirlwind, which means that although Jesus' heart always desired obedience, the practice of that obedience was tested, it was pressured, it was challenged. All of Jesus' obedience was predicated on not my will, but yours be done. But how Jesus had to live out that obedience was in varied and unpredictable circumstances. It was as varied and unpredictable as the world that we step into every day. That was Gethsemane. And Gethsemane became a school a school. And Jesus learned obedience in that waiting. And it wasn't easy. I've heard it said before by older and wiser Christians that the deeper you grow in your faith, the more aware you become of your own sinfulness. The idea is that as as you mature in your faith, You sin fewer times, but you also become more aware of how pervasive and subtle your sinfulness is. This is the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. And when a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness. Less and less. And I just want to say, man, this gives me some comfort, right, when I feel like an idiot. Which I think, I, I, I don't know how to tally this, but I think that has increased in the last few years, okay? Which is, I think, a good sign, I hope, right? Feeling that way. <laughs> just the other day, for example, I was, riding, I was riding in the car with one of my children who was Driving. And this kid is a good driver, okay? Don't worry. Ruthie gave me permission to share the story. Um, but we were in traffic, and, and, and there was this moment when the child had to hit the brakes. And it, was, it just it happened. It was kind of tight traffic. They hit the brakes, but I was riding in the passenger side, which to be honest, I don't do much. So I'm an inexperienced passenger driver. And they hit the brakes, and it was one of those times where you just go, "Uh," you know, you kind of do that, gasp sort of deal. And you can't help it, right? You don't, you just, it's just a reaction. You you just kind of do like that. Look, I have thought, I have thought long and hard about this, okay? I think Jesus would have gasped too, all right? (laughs) Because he, he, you know, he, was, he had reactions. He had reactions. And this was a, a scary split second. It, it was. But the problem was not my reaction. It was that comment I made right after. It was one of those things where like, you know right away, man. You're just like, ah, I shouldn't have said that. I knew I was wrong. And there's a moment that this happens, this moment happens, and you know what I'm talking about. There's a moment when it comes to our sin where we come to a kind of crossroads, right? And we could go this way, and this is the way where we kind of, we, we double down and we try to justify our sin, or we try to pretend like it wasn't a big deal, brush it aside. Or we go this way. And if we go this way, it's where we admit that we're wrong. We confess the sin right away to God and to others. And just, if this way were more comfortable, we would go that way more, but it's not. Because if you go this way, you're going to be confronted with shame. You're going to feel regret. There's an emotion there. Chagret. It's like, what is that? It's like, it's shame. It's regret. It's like, oh, I wish I could take that back. I wish I could just go back and just not. So what do I do with that? Like, what do I do with that? I go to Jesus. Who, who learned obedience through what he suffered. Verse 10, and being made perfect. Now the idea here, Pastor David mentioned this last week, is completeness perfect as in completeness. This is referring here to Jesus' resurrection and exaltation after the days of his flesh was mission accomplished. After he suffered in our place and died on the cross, God raised Jesus, he enthroned Jesus, and Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which means... Jesus is not just the son who reigns, but he is the high priest who has made atonement for us, who intercedes for us. Jesus is seated on the throne of his rule, but it's also a throne of grace. And I can go to him. We can can go to him. And we can go to him because he knows where we're coming from. He knows. And this is where we have to remember, chapter 2, verse 11, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Jesus really gets us, and he gets all those situations, those temptations. He gets it. And we can go to him. This is what it means for us. This is the, I think maybe the most important thing I can say today. Because Jesus gets us, it means that his love for us is a love for us where we are. I want you to hear this. Jesus this morning, he loves you where you are, not where you pretend to be. He he loves you where you are, not even where you aspire to be. He loves you where you are because he gets it. He he's been there. Jesus loves us in the days of our flesh because he had days when he was in his flesh here on this earth. Jesus loves us during the days and the moments of our lives on this earth in all of our weakness and in all of our failures. And so that's the invitation this morning is that we would come to him because that's true. That's the invitation of this table. At this table this morning, we remembered the death of Jesus for us. We're going to take the bread, and we're going to take the cup. And as we, as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we are saying, yes, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my treasure. He is my only hope, and I come to Him. That's what we're saying when we take the elements. We're saying the only way that we can actually live in this world is if we come to Him again and again and again. So that's what we're doing this morning. If you're here and you trust in Jesus, if you put your faith in Him, we invite you to come to Him again this morning. Come to Jesus and give Him thanks. I'm going to serve the bread first. Just hold it. I'll come back up. We'll eat it all together. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.